You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Antti Ilmanen is AQR's co-head of the Portfolio Solutions Group. He is the author of a new book, Investing Amid Low Expected Returns, Making the Most When the Markets Offer the Least. He has an incredible CV full of all sorts of awards and has worked at all sorts of places like Salman Brothers and Brevin Howard before ending up at AQR. If you're at all interested in value investing, factor investing, understanding how your starting condition leads to future returns that might be better or worse than historical averages, you're going to find this to absolutely be a masterclass in investing. I found it absolutely fascinating, and I think you will as well. With no further ado, my conversation with AQR's Antti Ilmanen. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. I'm really looking forward to this. Same here. So so first, I found the book to be quite fascinating, very in-depth, and you managed to take some of the more technical arcana and make it very understandable. We'll circle back with that. Let, let's start just by talking about your career. You, you began as a central bank portfolio manager in Finland. So yeah, my really first stroke of luck, I think, was getting that job. Before that, I had been nerdy kid with uh, interest in esoteric things like um, royal family trees or, mm-hmm. or track and field statistics, not trading. And when I was studying in university economics, I did not really get the passion. The passion came when I went to invest the country's foreign exchange reserves there. And it was, it was very much uh, global government bond markets. Mm-hmm. So thinking about macro picture, I've never, never then, then nor later um, had... I don't know, much, much interest in on uh, single stock picking. So, so think, thinking of the big picture, and there were some lovely, lovely things like um, I, I was there in the October 87 crash and saw two year yields falling in one, one overnight from 9.5% to 7.5%. You don't see those movements. That's a anymore. giant move. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, so that was, that was, that was a great, great learning experience. And, and then my second related stroke of luck was that Professor Ken French came there. Oh, really? To, uh, Dartmouth. Yeah. yeah. He, he came to educate us in 1989 and teach sort of what we were doing, what we should be doing. And, and, and I was an enthusiastic uh, kid there. Well, by that time, I was already almost 28. And, and he 
when I was expressing some interest about studying in the U.S., he was saying, "You should do it soon. You are you are sort of old enough to do that." And 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 a few months later, I was I was in the U.S. and it was so lucky in my life because because that year I met then uh, Cliff Asnes and John Liu, who later founded uh, uh, AQR. So f- as my fellow students, I met my wife there. She was MBA student from Germany and would have left a few months later. University of Chicago. University was- of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So all of this. All of this luck sort of was related to my wonderful first job. So right. I'm eternally grateful. And, and uh, Gene Fama teaches there, and his research partners Ken French. Yeah, That's yeah. Both, both Cliff, actually all three, Cliff, John, and I, we we, we had Fama and French as our dissertation chairman, and and that's a small source of pride. Right. Little little intimidating. So yeah. so you go from Chicago. Is that how you ended up at Salman Brothers? Yeah, so th- that that relationship actually already started when I was a portfolio manager. I, funnily enough, actually, like one of these Michael Lewis's liar spokers, mm-hmm. good guys, was one of my sales sales contacts there. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. He didn't have many good guys, but one was anyway. So, so um, and and I and I got to know people like Marty Leibovitz before I went mm-hmm. to Chicago, and I think he helped. He may have again had a hand hand somewhere there. And so when I finished my studies. It was pretty clear that I wasn't sort of academic enough. I wanted to go to either buy side or sell side. I even talked to the G somewhere, Cliff and John were, didn't go there. Uh, sort of thought from my 80s experience that buy side is dusty, wrong choice. Anyway, so uh, so I, I, I then went to Salomon Brothers, did bond research for a couple of years on yield curve strategies, then moved to Europe. That was always a deal with my wife mm-hmm. uh, to, um, to be a bond strategist at Salomon uh, for for many years. Initially very discretionary, but gradually becoming more and more systematic and mm-hmm. uh, and eventually sort of turned from this customer-oriented role to prop trading for a while. And then how did you end up at Brevin Howard? Yeah, so I think that from from these times when I was strategist, I was talking to my to great people, like you know, early on some LTCM and then various other people, including Alan, who came actually from Salomon. And so somewhere at 03, he sort of invited me to try to be a mini cliff, uh, <laughs> a systematic systematic trader with a small team there at Brevan Howard, which was in some sense great, but it is sort of a misfit because it's a very discretionary place. Right. And so trying to do systematic in that environment was harder. And I think none, none of us were doing extremely well. None of us were doing extremely badly, but it just it just didn't become a um, great Just not success. a great fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, it was, on the other hand, it was just a great place. Well, first to try it, but the second thing is that when 2008 came along, it was one of the few places that were making money. So it was a very comfortable vantage mm-hmm. point for, for that environment. How did you go from being a mini cliff ass nest to a maxi cliff ass nest? Yeah, so, so, <laughs> Um, I had stopped at systematic trading, but I had been talking with those guys often of possibly um, joining. It was a matter also of them opening European office because that's mm-hmm. where I was physically. And so so, so that that was approaching. It also helped that I was, I basically decided to write this book, Expected Returns. And when I when I wrote it, I asked Cliff to write the foreword for it. And uh, and by the way, like if you if you haven't looked like check sometime the first words he has there, like it was I, I was sweating when I read read that. Um, <laughs> uh, it starts by telling that first time I met Dante, I thought he was insane, and I was right. <laughs> so 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 that, that that was a little stressful, but it it turns it out very nice. But anyway, so. That experience reminded, I think, both of us how aligned our thinking is based mm-hmm. on this common common background, and that somehow I think motivated them to, I think them to offer and me to me to say yes, yes, to uh, to the idea of joining them. Really, what I would think is getting to my natural home 
and that mm-hmm. happened in 2011. So you've been there for more than a decade. You're now co-head of Portfolio Solutions. What is that role like? What's your what's your day-to-day yeah. work like at, at AQR Capital? Yeah, so the Portfolio Solutions Group um, advises mainly institutional clients on all kinds of challenges that they have on thinking about expected returns, portfolio construction, risk management, etc. And then in addition, we write lots of papers. I speak in many conferences. And then in addition to that, I've had a hand in designing and improving some of our strategies, especially related to style premium. That was something I was quite passionate about when I joined. And uh, and by now I'm co-head, uh, the guy who has collaborated very closely with me, Dan Villalon, uh, has taken more and more over the day-to-day running of the thing. And I, I, you know, I took time to write the second book recently, and now I'm talking about it. And I think with, with, with my age, I'm happy to sort of move to part-time status, I think. Hmm. So in the book, Cliff Asnes again does the introduction, and, and he says, you overshare a great characteristic for someone to research, but he f- sometimes says he's afraid you're gonna reveal the secret sauce. Uh, what, explain oversharing of, of uh, financial research. Yeah, so this is, this is related to all of us having this University of Chicago experience where, where we were really taught the value of being open and, and putting your research out there for public scrutiny to, to improve it and to educate. But of course there are uh, possible downsides to that and, and, and that has been always a, always a question. So, so I'm not, and we are not writing about all the proprietary, proprietary strategies that we have, but we are talking quite openly about some things like, again, styles, factor investing, alternative risk premium, things that are relatively widely known. And I have this, I don't know, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly leaning that way of being too transparent and, uh, and, and then somebody may have to control me a little. <laughs> so, so let's just talk a little bit about um, two of the key themes in the book. The first is alpha, it's the holy grail, but also elusive and costly. Explain. Alpha is something we all aspire for, but in reality, the evidence is very limited that, that most investors can deliver alpha. Moreover, there's, there's a lot of good research by others and us showing that much what people think is alpha can be explained by either, you know, hedge funds running, taking on more risk, lots of equity correlation, right. or then correlation to these various styles that, that are not quite quite market beta, but it's, it's certainly not pure alpha either. Mm-hmm. So somehow this type of demystifying, I think, is helpful. But, but it's, it's clear that investors tend to be, managers and investors tend to be overconfident in their ability to find that elusive so, alpha. So I'm glad you brought that up, because there's another bullet point in, in the last chapter of the book, which strikes me, uh, let me let me read it, quote, discipline, humility, and patience um, as a key to investing success, that sounds more like behavioral finance than factor investing. Yeah, yeah. So one other founder, David Kabiller, he's, he's always had this very good point that good investment results require good investment strategies and good investors. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so we wrote the paper together um, almost a decade ago on bad habits and good practices and, and really think, thinking about those things. And it, it does definitely get to behavioral vices. In general, I think behavioral finance literature focuses way too much on how you can exploit other people's mistakes as opposed to looking in the mirror and reducing your, your own, own mistakes. So, huh. yeah. Real, really quite interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, some of the concepts about expected returns. 
Um, you mention in the beginning of the book lower asset yields and richer asset prices have pulled forward future returns. In other words, a lot of the gains we've seen in the 2010s, and I would guess 21 and 22, weren't so much based on that multiple and of earnings, but future multiples that were pulled forward into that time period? Explain that. It's always good to think of starting yields and valuation sort of as two sides of the same coin. So starting yields of all major assets were coming down in, in last decade and last decades, actually several decades. So um, something that I try to make investors see that uh, they naturally think of this way, this way, also of expected returns with bonds, but when they think of equities or housing, they sort of look at the rear view mirror and think of right. historical average returns. That can be distorted by this richening or cheapening uh, quite a lot. So I think it's helpful to think that all of these long only investments uh, are priced by thinking of expected cash flows discounted by your common discount rate, the riskless part, and some various asset specific premia. And now when this common discount rate has been at all time lows, and, and was coming down for decades. So that was making everything expensive at the same time, whatever happened to the expected cash flows and other premia. And so that, that situation has gotten us to this uh, sort of everything bubble, as some, some say. And I think it's bubble is a bit wrong word there in the sense that there is a fundamental story behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, the low real yields that were influencing all kinds of investments. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. 
makes a lot of sense. You wrote this book in 2021, or at least finished it in 2021, and you describe in the book what you see as an, quote, investment winter ahead. I have to say that seems pretty prescient considering since you handed the book in to be published last year, markets have pretty much done nothing but roll over and head south in 2022. Was this just lucky timing or were you a little prescient? No, I'll, I'll put it largely to lucky timing. But so the, the story I was always saying that we know that we've got these low expected returns given those low starting yields. And, and by the way, re- related to what you're saying, I, I really like another statement. We borrowed returns from the future right. when, we were de- when we were capitalizing everything at those expensive levels. And so that locked in low future returns. We just didn't know whether that's going to materialize through slow pain, staying in this low expected return world, or fast pain cheapening. And so then in the in the book, I was I was saying that I don't really have a strong view on this one. But but in conclusions, I did put there that that it just seems that stars are aligning for some fast pain. And it wasn't just the high valuations, but there was a catalyst. There was this basically the inflation problem was seemingly getting as close to the day when Fed finally has to make some hard choices. Mm-hmm. And so 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 that I got got right, but but I would say that I was really lucky because I could have written it six months earlier. And in general, I've had other market timing calls. I'm not famous for being good at market timing. I don't know anybody who is. There are no old gold market timers in Forbes right. billionaire lists. Right, there's there's old and there's bold, but there's not both. Um, let's Let's, Talk a little bit about the pushback to low expected returns. You know, following the financial crisis and the Fed cutting rates, economy and the market starts to recover in late 20, 2009 and then 2010. And we kept hearing from a lot of different value corners, hey, everything is richly priced. Bonds are the most expensive they've been in 30 years. Stocks are pricey. Lower your return expectations. But yet the 2010s, saw returns in equities and bonds close to double historical averages. How do we explain why that advice took so long before it started to work? So I I think there is a fair risk that we, anybody who was talking like that, is thought as the boy who cried wolf and losing losing credibility then by this time. And I think that would be sad because I think it, sometimes it's going to really work and this year really looks like it can be can be that sometime. And I, I felt always somewhat good that we were, at least we were not pushing for, we were not predicting mean reverting valuations that right. would have made things work. We were saying, let's be really humble about any market timing use of this stuff, but low starting yields do anchor expected returns lower. But it's true that, and, and what we saw then in that in that decade, that rich things can get richer and that sure. can take quite a long time. And so actually the, my favorite uh, quote is to think about what happened to S&P 500, the Schiller P. That went from mildly above historical average 20 to double and wildly above average 40 in 10 years time. And that type of thing gives you, well, basically 7% annual returns prorated then. And so so that's the key reason. And something similar happened. Real yields on bonds were already low. They went even lower. Um, Rental yields on equities, credit spreads, anything you look at had basically uh, tailwinds from, from these falling yields. And that repricing then gave high returns and that there's a danger that people then look at the rear view mirror and become complacent right. just at the wrong time. So so let's talk a little bit about that. Um, how significant was the ultra low rates of the Federal Reserve to making all of these different asset classes 
richly valued and continuing to generate strong returns right up until the Fed started raising rates. So I, I think, so short term, what happened this year was really, there was a catalyst of uh, inflation and Fed tightening, but the long term story was always always about valuations. And, and the important thing, as I said, is related to this common part, uh, low real yields. And should we blame Fed for that? Or should we blame somehow greedy investors? I, I buy more the stories that there was this fundamental, fundamental effects most importantly, probably savings glut, excess savings coming from pension savers. Also, another story is that that when when uh, the wealthy were getting a bigger share of the pie, their savings rates are higher. There are there are research on both fronts, which which mm-hmm. sort of explain why we've gotten this exceptional um, savings glut, which was then pushing all assets uh, yields uh, lower. And, and creating this. And Fed and uh, investors were basically then responding to that situation um, rather than driving it. Now, we heard a lot about the savings glut from then-chairman Ben Bernanke in the early 2000s. Is this savings glut qualitatively different than what we saw two decades ago? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's the same idea. So always when you think of real yields, you think, that, okay, there's, an, there's either an issue with investments or savings, and it's, it's a balance between those two. And he was highlighting that this probably is more coming from the savings side. And then he was emphasizing that this is, the, this is a China and, and often, often um, emerging market foreign reserves, those, those types of excess savings were sort of the culprit for the conundrum in 2005 or whatever it was. And, and I think that, that story still has some legs, but, but sort of the, the key culprit then became demographics and retirement savers and the latest story now is in the, in the sort of the 1%. So, so it, the flip side of that, if, if there's a savings glut, meaning a big uptick in demand for that paper, does that also suggest we have a dearth of high quality sovereign paper of, of bonds issued by countries uh, like the US or the UK? Or is it just whatever the existing supply of, of paper is what it is, and it's the demand that has spiked. Yeah, I, I think the de- demand has been driving things, and, and, uh, and well, the supply has been there. Like there's, there's, there's been plenty of, plenty of supply as well to, to cater for it, and, and really, really given the need for the, to, to cover the public deficits and so on. But again, I think, I think if one thinks of what, what sort of started this among fundamental forces, I'd choose to go with that savings glut. Uh, that's make, my best reading of the literature. M- makes some sense. So you wrote the prior book a decade ago, 2011, just expected returns. In the decade between that book and this book, what have we all learned? What, what has the markets taught us? And how did you work that into the new book? Well, I like the I like the basic framework still, still in the book. But um, I think certainly it was a terrible decade for all kinds of contrarian strategies, and and I have become even more humble. It's sort of funny that I, I, I wrote my dissertation 40 years ago on duration timing, and I've thought about all kinds of market timing. Every decade, I become more humble about about the endeavor. And yet, even as I told, like in, in the, at the end of this latest book, I'm still mentioning stars are aligning, and it, it might be. So So the temptation is there, but I think we, the main point I want to say is I think we should really try to think of investing as a strategic uh, effort, good diversification and so on, as opposed to some great tactical timing because that doesn't do too well. So I think I think that would be and part, partly, you know, relearned through the difficulty of contrarian timing strategies. Then, then uh, another thing which which was very important in this decade uh, was there was a growing interest in these diversifying return sources. But I think by now, 
the, the most popular one is related to illiquid investments, whereas my favorites were then and are still now more liquid strategies, various style, premium value, investing, trend following, and so mm-hmm. on and so So one of the interesting things you talk about in the book is that we continue to find more data, and not just the decade of data that went by, but historical data, old data, going back to the 1800s. I have to ask, where is this, uh, do we call it ancient? Where is this... 19th century data coming from and and how can you apply it to investing in the 21st century? Yeah, so the the first point is that we accrue out of sample new experience so slowly that 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 it's sort of pain, painful to do to do that waiting and and therefore it is helpful supplementary source to get some old data sources. Most early studies were done with data since 1960s to 90s and then it was extended to beginning of CRISP data, 1926. Right. And now we've had people going further back and and, and I am, so I, I haven't been one of those in the archives, but but I'm one of those looking at that that data and studying it critically and, and seeing what, what we can learn from there, mainly whether you whether you get similar patterns. I, I, I do love it when I find that some strategies have worked persistently over different centuries pervasively across different countries and asset classes and robust with different uh, specifications. So that makes me more confident. But I do, I have recognized, and that's something I, I, I say in the in the book as well, that, that when people see my 100 and 200 years of data there, some just roll their eyes and 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 uh, <laughs> why is that? Yeah, why why do why do I care about two hundred years of data? I really care about last three years with my own portfolio. Well, obviously that's a, a very specific sample set. You want to go way beyond that, but it raises people rolling their eyes. Raise the question: How reliable is that data? How accurate is it? Can we have confidence that it's been cleanly assembled? Because the technology of the eighteen hundreds little more manual than, All fair. than today. All fair. So I'll just I'll just say well first I say you just do the best you can and, and sure. I think so so there's some value in the data, but the prop there are data problems, there are investability questions, even if the data were fine, maybe right. you couldn't do foreign diversification or something like well actually before first World War, maybe you could. That was pretty international era. Um, and then there's a whole criticism that the, the world has structurally changed. And that criticism has more bite the further back you go. So I think for all these reasons, we should be skeptical, but I still like it as a supplementary evidence, uh, not as main motivation for anything. So yes. you mentioned diversification earlier. In the last section of the book, you write an ode to diversification. Tell us about that. Sure. I do think, you know, it's a cliche, but diversification is pretty close to a free lunch and it is a wonderful, wonderful aid to improving portfolios. I think it's much easier to improve your risk-adjusted returns through good risk diversification than by getting somehow greater insights in one particular strategy. So, and and so I write I write about it both, both the, I don't know the, the the simple maths about it. How you can double double sharp ratios with five, four un- uncorrelated strategies, and then remind that it's really difficult to find four uncorrelated strategies in long only world. You may have to get to long short world to take advantage of those types of opportunities. And then I'm the flip side of that. I am saying that diversification has got some critics. Of course, there's div- diversification, or the or or that diversification fails when most needed, and so on. And I think I, I can counter those to some extent, but I think there are challenges. Good 
risk diversification often then requires you to use some shorting and leverage and there are limits to how much people want to mm-hmm. do that. There's unconventionality issues. And then there's this, what, what we've highlighted in recent years, that you sort of inherently, you lack stories. And and so it's 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 very sort of, I don't know, math-oriented uh, or, or algebra-oriented type of thing, as opposed to great stories which, which drive most investment passions. Right, right, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned free lunch. You talk about rebalancing, arguably another free lunch. Tell us your thoughts on rebalancing. Yeah, so rebalancing, I think, is a way of ensuring that you can retain your risk targets and you can retain your diversification. So I, I, I think of it primarily as that. There's a follow-up question whether you whether you can get better returns and then how you do it and so on. And I, I, I talk a little. I think, I think I wouldn't be too strict on rebalancing. I, th- I think like one, one good idea is to be somewhat lazy with rebalancing strategies. So let- Meaning let, let, once let, a let year? Yeah, something a- like that. Or or maybe four times a year, but part of the portfolio. Right. So, so you are sort of averaging. You don't, you, you don't get so um, dependent on when you did it during, during right. the year. So that, that type of thing. But, but basically, if you, if you are a little lazy or patient with rebalancing, you let the near-term momentum play out and you might get closer to the time when there's mean reversion advantages. So, so you are trying to play a little bit these advantages that tend to be in financial markets with momentum and mean reversion. So let's talk a little bit about low expected returns. We, we already talked about the impact on Fed rates. What else goes into driving valuation factors that can lower future expected returns? It really depends on what horizon we talk about. So monetary policy, macro conditions are very important for short term. But I think I, I, I'd like to focus, and I do focus in the book mainly on long term expected returns. And then it long term being three, uh, five, five, seven five, years? five to ten years, something mm-hmm. like that. And yeah, it's interesting. If you go even further, then sort of valuations even don't matter. Sort of everything is gets diluted, and then you right. have to think about what's some theoretical long run return. But so sort of for for ten years ahead, then starting yields and valuations are essential. And and again, so I think those. Those are a very helpful anchor for thinking about those returns, even though you can get these very ugly uh, forecast errors like what happened in the last last decade. But when such a thing happens, then it pretty much stores problem for the future. So last decade, assets rich and it, it just meant that well, you are going to have even more problems uh, in, in, in those future returns. And I think the only way you can sort of solve the low expected return problem here is, at least for risky assets, is that there would be this much faster growth, this techno optimism that you you hear in some quarters, and there there I say could be, but we've had we've had wonderful technological advances last hundred years, and uh, and two percent real growth is pretty much as good as it gets. And that's the interesting thing because you talk in the book about uh, very often mom and pop investors, individual investors, tend to confuse. Uh, GDP growth with expected returns, academically, we know there's almost no correlation between the two, is there? It's surprising that whether you look at over time in one country or you look at across countries, the relation is very modest. And my my favorite poster boy on that one is China, which had this 30 years of very fast GDP growth. Massive growth. And for equity investors, it was a really sorry story. Yeah, no, it was a lost opportunity. If you piled into China... In 1990, you missed a lot of opportunity elsewhere in the world. Yep. It, it's and, quite and, yeah. quite amazing. Yeah. And there are some stories why that's why that's the case. Like basically, you know, one one logic is a GDP growth doesn't capture how the pie is shared between corporates and so on. And there's sure. there's a different sector compositions. There's there's 
public versus un- unlisted uh, sectors, all, all kinds of questions like this that can then mechanically explain why this happens. But it is a, it's, it's a, it's a weird result and it's understandable and it, I think it commonly motivates people to look for those fast growing countries and taking it for granted that that's a good equity hmm. investment. So when we're thinking about various asset classes, how does cash work into that allocation strategy? Is that a legitimate asset class or is it just a drag on future returns, except for years like 2022? Well, even in 2022, again, in relative sense, cash is of course doing fine, but the real real return in cash is whatever, minus 5%. It just happens to be better than even more bearish, <laughs> right. bearish results. And so so I think one one interesting uh, thing is that you, you sort of, you need to have some market timing ability, I think, to make cash useful and, and use it almost as an option. And and then it matters whether you have got um, some interesting yield levels. 20 years ago, you had that 3-4% real return right. of cash, not not around in this situation. So I do think that the main story with cash is, like you said, like there's, there's, there's something about the drag in it, it dilutes, it's not a great diversifier, it dilutes the performance. It would be good if you have got some great market timing skills, but let's be humble about it. Often I'd even say that yeah, cash may be best used as a, basically on, on the other side, like you wanna use it for leverage for some long shot strategies. And so that may be, uh, a helpful answer what you do with that. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. (laughs) Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. In the book, I I like the way you describe certain investor types based on their future liabilities. So uh, 
pensions, endowments, defined benefit plans. You point out that they're particularly sensitive to low expected returns. Tell us what makes them so susceptible. Is it the future liabilities they have? Why is merely the concept of lower expected returns so problematic for them? Yeah, well, I think it is It is for any investor, but if you have made some commitments for the future, then it is maybe more legally binding and um, and that, that makes it tougher than for somebody who can who can basically adjust expectations um, or, or try to just live through these things without without sort of recognizing the low expected return until until somewhere far into the future. So so let's talk about far into the future. How long should we expect lower returns for? Is this a question of quarters or, or years and decades? Is this cyclical? Does it eventually turn over? T- tell us a little bit about sure. duration of expected returns. Sure. So the main story of the book is about low, those low starting years, and therefore we are talking of long run story. Then I'm, I'll sort of turn into more speculative pundit here by thinking about the current situation where I do think that uh, we are now in this fast pain situation uh, where we will probably get more, we will, will surely get more monetary policy tightening. And I suspect that the latest latest market posi- positivism on yields is maybe way too optimistic. I think I think you will need you will need more tightening to control inflation. And again, this is this is a speculative talk here. So I, I think fast pain will be with us for various risky assets, but I um, I think there will be a limit to it because of the structural forces. I refer to the savings glut. I think that's not going away anytime soon, and therefore there's going to be a lid on how far yields can rise. And that mm-hmm. and basically those bond yields they have been underwriting high valuations on all other on stocks and real estate and so on, and 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 those rising yields have been very important in cheapening those other asset classes. And so I, th- I think there's going to be more pain on that front, but not too much. I don't think we will get so much higher yields and cheaper asset valuations that we would sort of solve the long run problem of low expected returns. We will we will still get some pain, but but we'll, I think the slow pain will be with us quite a long time. So, so let me see if I can explain that, if I, if I understand that. We've had uh, a savings glut that has put a cap on interest rates, which means that the cost of capital has been very low, and therefore that allowed us to speculate in real estate, in equity, and that allowed valuations to go high. And what's going to determine how much those multiples compress is how high rates end up going up? Am I oversimplifying that? Yeah, no, no, that is that is right. And again, we have got now this cyclical situation where where basically the inflation problem forced finally central banks to to act quite aggressively. Then on well, Fed anyway uh, on on the interest rate front, and um, and then how much more they have to do is going to be important in the near term. But I just don't see a scenario where they would uh, raise rate so much. That we would get back to the kind of four or five percent uh, right. expected real returns on 60-40 portfolios, which used to be there. We are about half of that nowadays. Uh, we've come from the lows, but we are still like let's say 60-40, two percent real yield is roughly the number, as opposed to the four plus long run. So, so we're recording this the first week of July. The Fed has already raised 75 basis points on top of their previous 50 basis points for a while. The consensus is that the end of July, I think it's the 27th, that meeting, seemed to be 75 basis points. Uh, it sounds like fears of recession 
might drive that down to 50 basis points, but clearly there's no consensus there yet. How far do you think the Fed's going to go in tightening? And do we run the risk that we're behind the curve in 2021? Are we running the risk that they're getting ahead of themselves in 2022? Yeah. First, just a, a qualifier here that that uh, nobody knows. Nobody knows, <laughs> and 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 we don't trade on my views. We don't like this is this is uh, that's that's important, and it is it's incredibly difficult. But but yeah, we we certainly do think about those those issues a lot. And and my I'm I'm pretty much in let's say Larry Summers camp. They're thinking that it's very hard to get the uh, immaculate disinflation here, and and and. You will need Fed. Fed needs to do more to get that inflation in, into control. And if it does, either if it acts more or financial markets drop enough, then then there's going to be some pretty bad outcomes to uh, risky assets. Without that, I think we are um, we are going to continue to have that inflation problem. There's a, there's a narrow path how it could go in a more benign way, and market seems to be clutching that straw right now. <laughs> so. What would make you change your mind? What would lead you to say, oh, I've been too cautious about future expected returns, and because A, B, and C happen, I think we could get a little more um, confident? Yeah. So I, th- I think the long horizon estimates are very difficult to change. The starting yields are a, are a heavy anchor. So I think it would be it would really require the growth environment to change. Again, I, I mentioned earlier the technological progress, those types of things. So Short term, anything can happen, but, right. but, but but somehow you have to have this type of uh, idea of the greater internet usage globally and all, all kinds of technological progress moving us from the 2% to 3 4% real Which growth. Which is hard world. to do. Hard to do, has not happened. Right, and then you mentioned earlier the cheapening. If stocks got much cheaper, that could potentially change it, the starting uh, valuation, but do, do we really think that's a likely probability? Yeah, I, I, I would be surprised that we would get that much cheaper. And again, the, the economic logic I have is there, the savings glut somehow, that, that basically real yields are not gonna allow that. We have two, I don't know, fragile economies, two fragile financial markets to, to allow that much cheapening. We, so we, would, we might be talking of 40, 50% further, further market falls. And, right. and, uh, that's, uh, and that, that seems pretty unlikely from, at, yeah. at least with the state of the world today, obviously that can change any time. That, that's really that's really quite interesting. So let's talk about some things that seem relatively cheap. Cliff Asness in the foreword of the book wrote, quote, value premia seems record cheap today. That was the end of 2021. Is value premia still cheap today? Value premium is still very cheap. And it's been a lovely year in the sense that we have had positive returns and yet the value spread this forward-looking measure of how cheap value stocks are versus growth stocks has remained wide. And part, partly it is that you get some pullbacks like we have recently recently gotten, but also you, we are basically rotating into new value stocks and growth stocks, and, and, and the fundamentals have actually further had sort of favorable um, developments favoring value stocks versus growth stocks. So for all these reasons, we see that value stocks, the way we tend to trade them, are as cheap or even cheaper than they were at the worst times during the dot-com bubble. And it is important wow. to just distinguish, and Cliff wrote about this in a, uh, in a blog recently, that that dot-com bubble was very much about tech versus others. And, and across sectors, we haven't gotten to the new highs, but we tend to focus on within industry um, stock selection in our value strategies 
And with that, the key story of this recent bubble was really markets favoring these disruptive, profitless growth companies within every sector. And that opportunity remains still very wide. And we, we love seeing like pretty good uh, performance behind us and then then very good runway because those value spreads remain quite wide. And, and in the U.S., I've noticed that small cap value has done much better than the larger cap companies. And then emerging markets, small cap value, last I looked, it might have even been green for the year, it might have even been positive returns for the year. Why are small cap doing so well in the value space this year? Well, it often happens like you just you just get bigger movements in good and bad on the small caps than large caps. So so I mentioned the quote from Cliff. He's a big character. What what's it like working with him? It's mainly it's great though uh, if you had him with us here on this studio, I think you wouldn't hear much of me. And, and that's just as well because he is, he is, uh, he's faster on his feet than he's, he's wittier. So, so that's, that's in everybody's benefit. But it, so seriously, it does help that our investment thinking, investment beliefs are so similar. So I, I really rarely have got any, any, any wish to second guess anything he says or, or does, so, so that's great. And then most importantly, I do love his ethical antenna and this kind of truth-telling obsession that he has. I mean, sometimes there's, there are overshoots there, but it's really, it's, it's, it's a reason for me why I love to work in AQR more than in any other place in financial industry. Because of Cliff. You know, usually you get a guy who's quantitatively oriented, you tend not to get that sort of articulateness, and you also tend not to get that sort of um, sense of humor, which is very, very specific to him. He's a very funny guy. He is, yeah, and 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 I a bit mixed feelings because there's no way to beat him on those things, but that's okay. That, that's very funny. Um, so so let's talk a little bit about the things that have changed since you wrote this this book. Um, what's going on in the current market? Is it just confirming what your expectations were for for future returns? Tell us a little bit about how 2022. As now that it's half over, how has this impacted um, the general premise of of the book? Yeah, I think overall I feel totally blessed that that we got the book came out at a time when when markets were roughly acting the the way the title was saying, talking about low expected returns. We got low realized returns, so that just sounds sounds great. And it also turns out that some of our strategies, value strategy, trend following these types of strategies are doing very well. So so I'm getting like. Great, great response. But of course, things have some some things have happened as expected related to inflation, central bank tightening. But then I had no idea of what you know the geopolitics, Russia, Russia, Ukraine, sure. or or uh, the greater split we have between U.S. fear and China, and so on. So, and I don't have I don't have great insights uh, to this. For us, when I think of the low, low, long run expected returns, the key story is that. Assets have cheapened as one would one would have expected in this situation, and and the question is whether there's going to be more. I think it's it is interesting that we've had we've seen the biggest moves in bonds, s- smaller moves. When I think of yield yield space, not not price space, but in yield space, uh, equity yields have risen uh, more, and then illiquid yields have risen so far very little. And of course, there is a smoothing effect, and so that's a. But um, but I do expect that there's going to be an issue. I I, I saw in March when when equities didn't in instantly respond 
to rising yields. It, it reminded me of Wiley Coyote running running over that cliff and sort of waiting for gravity to hit. And and I think something like that maybe is still happening with the private assets that they are sort of waiting waiting to price things. So so let's talk a little bit about that. There's been a lot of discussion about private markets and and the illiquidity premium they get. Um, what what are your thoughts on this? Should should non-traded assets get an illiquidity premium? Yeah, so I I've, I've written a lot about it Cliff of course uh, also and 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 more more wittily on this and I think it is it's dangerous that people think too automatically that if I invest in illiquid investments, I'm going to earn an illiquidity premium. I think after equity premium, that's probably the second most confident statement people would have on longer mm-hmm. expected returns. And data doesn't really support it. So we've done lots of empirical evidence on this. And so the logic why why the data is then so maybe disappointing is, I think, that, that people somehow confuse, they, they think that... Um, that the illiquidity is the only important feature. So, so yes, I think it is fair to require a liquidity premium for locking your money for ten years. But then there's this other characteristics, like characteristic lack of mark to market, the smoothing service, service as I call it, uh, and that may totally offset the amount of. Uh, excess return that you get. So if there's a 2-3% required liquidity premium for, for locking money, um, we might accept the same return for public and private equities um, because with the private equities, you don't get the, the great volatility. That- Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.
see now, now you also show a chart in the book that that shows how the bottom third of um, illiquid markets have, you know, by definition, they're underperforming the top third, but that gap has just been widening. And it seems like in addition to whatever illiquidity premium are in private markets, there also seems to be a pretty substantial, I don't know if I want to call this quality factor, but the best of the illiquid investments seem to really dramatically outperform the bottom. That spread is much bigger than we might have anticipated otherwise. So so apart from thinking about illiquids overall, one of these great selling points there is is the wide dispersion between uh, outperformers and underperformers. And to me, that's such a lovely example of investor overconfidence that when people see this dispersion, they think, oh, the upside is for me, the downside is for someone else. <laughs> and so, so clearly this opportunity involves some risk as well. And, and, and it is, it's, it's just somehow that, that industry doesn't seem to have anybody getting that, that downside. So sorry, I, I, I do think that um, some investors have got a decent claim to expect to get those top quarter, right? let's say top half, half um, managers. But, but for others, I think it's, it's a somehow, it's better to just think that, okay, if we get the industry level returns, that's that's reasonable. So, so Will Rogers used to always advise people only buy stocks that go up. If they don't go up, don't buy them. Does the same thing apply to private markets? Only invest in private markets that outperform. If they don't outperform, stay away from them. Uh, yeah, yeah. If so only it was that simple. Hindsight is great, but, but it is <laughs> so. I would say just positively there that historically, in particular, if we look at private equity, it has a great 35-year history of outperforming S&P 500 by by 3% or something like that every mm-hmm. year. And that's after 5 6% fees. That gross alpha is just mind-boggling in some sense. But, but looking ahead, um, we should be much more con- uh, cautious because um, the gap has already been much narrower the last 15 years. And it seems to be narrower because the money was flowing in because of the popularization of the Yale model. Since then, the forward-looking opportunity has been much narrower and realized opportunity has been much more much more modest. And the fees are the good old fees. So uh, I, I think next decade will be more disappointing. Right, and, and when we look back to the early days of that outperformance, there were a tiny fraction of the number of funds then. At, what is it, like 10,000 private equity funds? They used to be... Yeah. They used to be numbered in hundreds, not yeah. thousands. Yeah, yeah. Same as as the hedge fund and the venture capital world. Success has attracted a lot of capital, which leads to underperformance. Yeah, and one one further thing is that these questions were already relevant a few years ago, um, but private equity did very well the last few years. And uh, and I saw Dan Rasmussen wrote quite uh-huh. quite nicely. So recognize. I mean, that's that's rare and lovely when somebody does it. Sort of. Um, post-mortem on my mistake, that's what, what he did there. And he said that he got it sort of wrong because um, because they, private equity, like hedge funds and especially venture capital, were pushing a lot into the growth sector. And that worked out very well for a few years. And I think to the extent that we are right about it, value versus growth, that benefit will turn into disadvantage, I think, in the coming hmm. years. And so really, we'll really interesting. Yeah. We haven't talked about a couple of other um, alternatives, credit spreads, commodities. What else are you thinking about in the alt space? 
Yeah, I think commodities is the most most interesting case. And so I've got a double positive story on that one. The first one is the obvious one that when we look for inflation hedging investments, they are pretty much the best there is. And right. so, so most portfolios that invest, most constituents of, of anybody's portfolio, stocks, bonds, and so on, they, 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 they have got disinflationary tilt. That was helpful for a long time, but mm-hmm. not recently. And so if you want to have a pretty neutral portfolio, you should have some, some allocation to commodities. Then the second point is that many investors think that you don't earn a positive long-run reward on commodities, but the data says otherwise, basically. Oh, really? Yeah, diversified combination of commodity futures has earned something like three, four percent long-run reward. And that's a, it's, it's a weird thing, and I, 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 I focus on it in the commodity sector, telling that it's part of it is related to commodity role maybe, but but important part is related to diversification return. So basically, this is getting very geeky, but let me just try. Commodities on a single single commodity basis have got 30, 40% volatility, which means that that, that type of volatility hurts compound returns a lot. And, um, and when you combine lowly correlated commodities together, you can reduce that volatility roughly half it, half it, and you can get this volatility drag much smaller. And so for if, if as the evidence suggests, that a single commodity has pretty much not outperformed cash in the long run, a co- portfolio of them has done it because of this sa- saving on this volatility drag, thanks to diversification. So it's a basket of energy and industrial metals and precious metals and foodstuffs and, and not lots just- of, lots of, Yes, and lots of single ones of them. And so again, mm-hmm. you get you commodities, you know, these types of effects happen in any investment, on your equities, on your bonds and so on. It just doesn't matter so much with them because the correlations tend to be higher or volatility is lower. Commodities have got this glorious combination of uh, high high volatility and low correlation that makes this really matter. Huh, very, very interesting. Let's talk about ESG. Um, there have been some estimates that it's now over $20 trillion. You talk a little bit about um, ESG investing, tell us about your thoughts. Yeah, so it is a clearly growing force and, and uh, I, w- I would argue also largely a force for good, but the, the expected return impact is debatable. And so Cliff wrote already a blog a few years ago highlighting this simple logic that, well, one logic is that constraints always should have a cost, but another logic right. is that if you wanna be virtuous and you wanna raise the discount rates for sinful companies. Well, you do that by maybe investing less, less in them or even in some cases you could, you could short them. And so um, if you do that and you raise their discount rate, you also raise that discount rate is a flip side of expected return. Makes them more that, attractive. Yeah, yeah. So somebody else who is willing to basically buy those sinful companies then will earn higher returns. So that is pretty much a long run story that should happen uh, when, when investors really like something for non-monetary reasons, and that, that includes ESG. Then the, I think the, the re- reasonable counter argument is that we may be in a transition phase here where, where we are getting the repricing. How do we get to those higher discount rates? Well, we get it basically by making those, those companies cheaper. And then we can debate now whether we are in early innings or late innings on, on that, that question. So, so, so in the long run, I think there will be some cost and I think most investors who are ESG oriented should be willing to take some cost as a, as a flip side of their uh, virtuous investing. But, uh, but in between, they might get sort of the win-win outcome that they so like. Now, you weren't getting the win-win outcome the past six months, especially if you were low carbon, low oil, 
uh, any of the energy stocks have just done spectacularly the past year. Uh, is that going to be the long run trade-off? Is that if you're staying away from some of these, you take a chance that there's a big move up in a sector that you've reduced your exposure to? Yeah, I, I, that, that, that possibility always exists. And now we, now that we had it, I think it is going to raise more discussions in some organizations than um, how to deal with any financial trade-off. And I must say that in, in Europe, I think that investors will largely um, stay with their ESG beliefs and there's not going to be... Uh, question if they if they think they there's there's some financial cost that's okay in us there's more doubts and it has become such a political issue right. here that it's going to be i think harder just i i I've, everything or anything i can say on this one i think is that is that there was a sort of easy travel towards more esg for the last few years and now i think we are we are in a, in a world where it's going to be harder i think the trend is still the same but it's going to be more jagged going ahead and maybe especially so in us and, and before I get to my favorite questions, I got to throw a curveball at you. Cliff Asnes mentioned you like to go in a 120-degree sauna and then jump out and roll around in the snow. Is is this a Finland uh, Finnish uh, sort of thing? Tell us tell us about your heat and cold habits. That is, that is exactly what we do for cheap fun. And <laughs> sadly, there are fewer opportunities with the global warming, but, but yeah. So, so how hot does the sauna get? I was thinking whether you are talking Fahrenheit or Fahrenheit, but not, yeah, no, we are talking so, so, so with, right, not with, boiling with, water. No, 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 with <laughs> centigrade. Now we we do go, go close 40 to degrees, close to, thirty-five degrees. Yeah, so no, no, we go to eighty to hundred degrees, definitely. So, so in centi centigrade. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's like one hundred sixty, one hundred eighty. Uh, you'll do the translation there. Wow. I, I, I think of you know the. I do my Fahrenheit and Celsius, not in, not in that area. But still, 80, but yeah, 80 yeah, degrees yeah. is very, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. just, that's yeah, very yeah. warm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice nice to sweat there. Yeah. And then when you jump into the snow, isn't that a little bit of a shock to the system? Yeah, well, or, or you go to, um, you know, polar ice, you go, you go into icy water. Sure. That's, that's, that's even better, but, but that's, that's, that's hard. But yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's great fun when you can rarely do that. Yeah. Quite interesting. All right, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Starting with, what have you been streaming these days? Tell us uh, about your favorite, uh, whatever kept you entertained during the pandemic or whatever podcast you listen to. Sure, sure. Yeah, I thought about this uh, in recent months when I have heard you ask these questions. And by the way, I've gotten some good tips. Yeah, I got I got the Le Bureau and um, Call My Agent, the French ones, and some Israeli shows in from here. So thanks Fouda. for those. Yeah, Fouda was yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's why I ask it, because... You know, I, I get to speak to people who have interesting sensibilities. I want to hear what they're seeing and hearing. Yeah, well, so so as a first non-obvious or non-interesting answer, I think like recently, I think, well, better call Saul, looking forward to the to the uh, last few uh, episodes. But uh, so that's that's been great. But I thought that I'd rather highlight then some less well-known older series. So my favorites, I think, in the last 10 years were sort of slow burn um the Americans, the Russian spice, mm -hmm. that, that, that one, or, or Rectify, it was a story from uh, Southern US and, and um, uh, just, just I, think, I think, lovely stories. You've got to take time for those. And likewise, then in podcasts, um, I listen a lot to history and so beyond, beyond investing, and I'll just leave. Well, on near investing, I would say Tim Harford's um, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, cautionary tales is is fun and and um, Zingales and Bethany McLean capitalism has got very thoughtful topics. So I think mm-hmm. they are they they are good. But, but I love in his history area. I love Dan Carlin, Mike Duncan, Patrick Wyman, and this British show called The Rest Is History, which just always makes me laugh. So so that's a, that's a good that's good that's a very interesting list. Um, let's talk about some of the mentors who helped to shape your career. Sure. So obviously, I, I told the dissertation chairman Fama and French. So they they've been very influential in many ways. But but I would especially then highlight Marty Leibovitz. So mm-hmm. all, all before, during, and after Salomon, yes. So and he's he's such a such a mensch that it's it is it's wonderful to have known him for decades. Uh, what about books? What are some of your favorites, and what are you reading right now? Yeah. So I am a voracious reader. Lots of investing fiction non-fiction all, all kinds of uh, things um, I thought I, I I will highlight from fiction um, really big one Hilary Mantel's trilogy on uh, Thomas Cromwell Wolf Wolf Hall I was thinking I think maybe I heard in your your show also the three-body problem very different mm-hmm. to sci-fi the Chinese one so I, I yes think that was great and then on 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 non-fiction um, I, I think the most impressive book I read in the last couple of years was Joe Henrich's the, the Weirdest People uh, in the World. So this is this is weird is uh, Western educated uh, uh-huh. rich, rich democratic and it's basically telling telling how different the people who are most often studied in various psychological studies, the Western university students, how different they are from most cultures. Right. And then it's explaining why things went that way. And it's, it's, it's both parts of the story are very interesting, but, but again, a very long book. Really, really intriguing. Yeah, and currently, um, Zach Carter, I think is the author of the book on Keynes, Price, Price, uh, Price of Peace, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. That's a good. That's a pretty good list. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in either investing, finance, value, quantitative investing? How would you advise them? I'll go with the old-fashioned. I think like don't sacrifice your ethics. That integrity matters. Mm-hmm. Good. That's really good advice. And and our final question: What do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew? 30 or so years ago when you were first getting started. I thought, I, I, well, I, I'll say this lightly, that bond yields can go negative. You know, didn't expect that to happen. But the funny thing is that I thought that really, uh, I would have then expected that to coincide with bearish equity markets. But in 2010, it actually happened with uh, with, a, with a big bull market. So it wasn't that, that equities um, pushed, uh, equity weakness pushed, uh, uh, bond yields down, but it was that low bond yields pushed equities up. So causality went that way, and and that's surprising. So I think that's 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 one. And then another serious serious point is is how important and how hard patience is. Mm-hmm. So so with all of these ideas, I, I talk about these long run strategies, and and you just uh, it doesn't matter too much if you don't have the stickiness. So I think one has to really calibrate one's investment to the amount of patience. One, one can reasonably expect to have. Huh, really, really intriguing. We have been speaking with Antti Ilmanen, co-head of Portfolio Solutions at AQR. If you enjoy this conversation, well, check out any of our previous 400 or so podcasts. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. 
You can sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Justin Milliner is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. Sean Russo is my head of research. Paris Wald is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.